Hello and welcome to this week's Law & Sport podcast with me, Sean Cottrell, the founder of Law & Sport. In this week's show, I'm joined by guests Kevin Carpenter, a sports lawyer at the law firm Hill Dickinson, and Professor Mark James from the Law School at Northumbria University to discuss the controversial issue of football banning orders. On today's show, I'm joined by Professor Mark James and Kevin Carpenter to discuss the controversial issue of football banning orders. Mark is a published author in this area and has a vast amount of experience for dealing with football banning orders. Mark, can you give a brief history of banning orders for the benefit of our audience to set the, the tone for the rest of the discussion? Yeah, football banning orders were introduced originally in, in the Public Order Act in 1986, and they've gone through various names and various guises over the last uh, 25 years or so. And what we've got now is is one all-encompassing football banning order that can be imposed on uh, football spectators through two different processes, either following conviction of a football-related offence, they can have a football banning order applied for by the prosecution as part of the punishment process under Section 14A of the Football Spectators Act. But what probably causes people a a bit more disquiet is that the police can actually apply for a football banning order against any football fan where they uh, have reasonable grounds to believe that a banning order would help to prevent violence and disorder at a football match. Now, for that, you don't need a conviction uh, for it to be imposed. It's, it's, it's sort of there to break the cycle of involvement with football-related disorder, so it's more preemptive. Have you got any recent examples of, of, of this being used? The, as far as the banning orders are concerned, they, all, they often go in cycles surrounding the international tournaments. So there, there's a drive going on at the moment to try and ensure that as many people that the police are concerned about uh, in, before the, the, ne- the World Cup next year can be banned. So I think that's one of the reasons why we're seeing a lot more discussion about this at the moment. One of the main things that they have really been concerned about during this season is the use of pyrotechnics, so smoke bombs and flares, and basically anybody caught with, uh, you know, anyone caught with smoke bombs or flares and particularly using them is, is almost guaranteed to be prosecuted, banned and probably uh, uh, sent to jail as well. Kevin, you touched on this, I think, in your in your uh, blog recently. Yeah, well, I think um, I think Mark's right. It, it it comes on to the upcoming FIFA World Cup in Brazil and the and the concerns around that should should England make the tournament, which is obviously debatable at the moment. Um, but assuming we do, um, I think this season we'll see a very uh, stringent approach taken by the by the authorities. Uh, and and give, bearing this in mind, over the past um, six months. There has been two separate um, documents produced by the Crown Prosecution Service, who are the uh, body responsible for prosecuting criminal offences uh, in uh, in Great Britain, and they've uh, given both some guidelines in relation to just purely social media offences, which I'm sure we'll talk a little bit more about later on, but also more widely a policy about prosecuting what we call football-related offences. And these are tried to send out a very strong message to supporters that um, there is going to be a crackdown this season and, and more importantly, highlighting the fact that you will not be able to travel to the, to the World Cup should you be caught up in this, in this current season at the moment. One of the main conditions of a football banning order is the surrender of your passport during various control periods. 
Um, and they, they usually apply either to when your own team is playing in European competition or if the national team is playing anywhere abroad. Generally around a, a European tournament, it will be 10 days before the start of the World Cup or European Championships and it's five days before any England game. So what you can see is really being banned for the whole of the World Cup for 10 days before the start of the World Cup next year. And then as England would undoubtedly have uh, warm-up matches beforehand, it could extend to another couple of weeks beforehand. So you could end up being uh, banned from travelling abroad for about nine or ten weeks next summer. And and do you think that given the sort of the range of behaviour that these can be, or as Mark said, you don't you don't need any criminal conviction to be issued with the banning order? Do you think it's proportionate? I, th- I think having read some more of Mark's uh, writing on this area, I think it certainly seems to me that that, that it doesn't seem to know it's not settled in in the law in in the United Kingdom whether or not, or in England and Wales, whether or not. It wants to be a criminal sanction, although it's actually written as a civil. Uh, sorry, it's actually written as a criminal sanction, but sort of applied in a civil manner, uh, and that's not um, a satisfactory way um, of using football banning orders. But I think from the from the guide from the uh, the policy that was produced this summer, one particular sentence which concerned me, and I'm sure would concern Mark, was. Um, it says that there will be a presumption of prosecution wherever there is sufficient evidence to bring offenders before a court on appropriate criminal charges and where a football banning order is considered necessary. And I think in anywhere where you use the phrase a presumption of prosecution um, is a concern. And I think that's pretty much telling you from the outset that if, if you are caught up in this, be accidentally or otherwise, um, for example, travelling to and from the a train station to the ground or or instances of that nature, then you are likely to be hit with a football ban in order for a considerable amount of time. I, I think that's entirely true. And the the other issue, again, with, the, with, with Kevin talking about the social media aspect, there has been an extension beyond really what football banning orders were initially brought into control, which was violence disorder and, and particularly alcohol-related disorder. At football matches and what we're seeing now is I guess to a certain extent more like the health and safety issue around pyrotechnics and we've seen a massive discussion over the last few weeks about uh, the the use or the the use of the word yid by uh, Tottenham fans and so we're seeing it now extending beyond uh, violence and disorder and potentially racial abuse into things that are potentially more I said either health and safety or or, or just much more insulting, which although has been removed from the Public Order Act, can still be caught by the Football Offences Act. So people are engaging in behaviour that they think is simply part of the atmosphere, whether or not we think it's an appropriate way of improving the atmosphere of the game. But it's moving beyond what the original idea for the banning orders was, which was to control what people would genuinely refer, or generally refer to as football hooliganism rather than anti-social behaviour. Well, that, that, that's interesting. Uh, and coming on to that social media point, we can see that and it has played out, hasn't it, on social media where people have involved themselves in conduct which at a football ground they would deem as being acceptable. Whether or not we agree with that is a different matter. But Obviously, they see that acceptable and part of the culture, and then they're putting it in writing and on a social network, possibly thinking that it's only being shared with their friends and not the the public at large. And I guess this is one of the reasons why the guidelines came out 
Um, Kevin, obviously, you've looked at this. Yeah, the guidelines are very interesting and kind of stem from a wider concern in society about the sort of concept of protecting free speech, but also, you know, not allowing people to be overly offensive to people sort of unnecessarily and to, to have some sort of sanction there for that. And what, what kind of the sort of thing that comes in the guidelines is the, the CPS got a lot of criticism for for certain people this is outside of sport, mainly being prosecuted for what people thought were fairly menial um, sort of tweets or Facebook posts. Um, but the, there was a, uh, a jail last year, somebody was jailed for, um, a, a student made a comment about Fabrice Mwamba when he suffered his heart attack on the, on the field of play, which subsequently led to his retirement. Um, and that led to um, a 56-day prison sentence for him at that time. Uh, and there is also, at the moment, uh, last week it was reported that Chris Hewton, the manager of Norwich City in the Premier League, uh, received, or there were some offensive posts made on Facebook, which had been taken forward by a, a campaign group, essentially a third party, whether Hewton himself knew about it, but it seems to have come from a third party of the complaint. Um, but I think what the guidelines have, have sought to do is to kind of tell people that, that there is a high threshold to be applied to such posts, um, and they... And it even says that those that are considered grossly offensive, indecent, obscene or false are unlikely to be prosecuted. And it's got to be in the public interest. Um, I think you'll see very few of these cases being brought to successful prosecution. Um, and the overriding policy has got to be necessary and proportionate when considering the public interest. And the, the guidelines seem to suggest that there are very narrow circumstances where that will be the case. From a club's perspective... Let's look at this. What 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 should they or are they already doing uh, to inform their fans about this and encourage them to conduct themselves in a way that is appropriate? I, th- I think clubs are doing things on a relatively piecemeal basis um, and and are being quite reactive. So when they find out that there are the uh, issues on social media or if uh, their fans are chanting something that they don't want them to anymore at games. Only at that point are they starting to try to educate the fans that this is something that they want them to stop. I think in respect to what's been going on at Spurs, the the, the various fan groups there have been quite engaging with both the club and the police about what they think is appropriate and also trying to explain some of the context in which uh, various words and songs are being used. So where you've got something that is is potentially provocative, the clubs are producing guidelines or giving advice to the supporters, but generally it's it, it's much more reactive than proactive in that respect. So what would you like to to see them doing, or what would you suggest that they could do? Um, there's just some basic steps then to to engage their fans and hopefully reduce the the number of instances. It's difficult to say because of the lack of clarity as to what might occur following it so it's unclear for example if people and if we use the spurs example as it's quite current if people are using the word yid it's it's unclear whether or not it is an an illegal act in the first place because it could be context uh, dependent if it is illegal is it something that can result in a football banning order or if it's not, is it something that they might that the police could use to collect evidence against you in order to apply for a football banning order without the need for a conviction? So there needs to be, rather than the clubs take it upon themselves, there needs to be a much greater degree of clarity 
in the entire framework of approach here. What is it that we want to stop? What is going to happen if funds engage in what could be seen as being racist or homophobic chanting? And then get the clubs to be able to take the steps because if the ultimate outcome is unclear, it's unclear what the clubs would want to do because if you're saying, oh, we don't really like this but we're not quite sure why, can you stop it? Nobody's going to stop it. But if you can come out and say, this is illegal, you will end up getting a banning order, stop doing it, and we'll cooperate with the police to ensure it's enforced. That's a much clearer message that you can send out because there's actual conduct or behaviour that you're trying to stop with an actual consequence that you're trying to prevent at the end. Well, I guess this is, this is something I haven't really considered much before. And that is that it's probably a difficult balance for the police to find with this in that you know they're trying to make sure that they act and, and uh, perceive to be doing all the right thing but the public perception is can be that sometimes it's a bit over the top or a bit of a knee-jerk reaction to coverage by the media and it's a difficult balance to strike as you said without identifying well, it, is a, it is a very it is a very good a very difficult balance and when you think that kevin's already mentioned one case where the abuse online ended up in a football context, ended up in, in, in somebody going to jail. Yet, uh, Alison Gurdon, who's a barrister who's worked a lot in this area, was blogging about this the other day, saying that when uh, One Direction fans were abusing Gabriel Adbonglahor for breaking one of the bands or damaging his leg, he was subjected to some really quite appalling and personal abuse. Yet everyone just said, oh, well, what do you expect? It's just, it's just girls, uh, and it's one of their heroes. What, you know, the, and it was all laughed off. Yet, in a similar way, if, somebody, if, a, fellow football, if a football fan had said that he was going to break Agbong Lahore's legs, then that, that would have raised all sorts of issues about whether or not they should be allowed to go to the football anymore. I think what, what's also a... Um I think Mark probably agrees. I think we're, we're living in a very politically delicate time in this area, given the the, the reopening of the Hillsborough disaster, all, all that having been come back out into the open in the past couple of years, and that's meant the government is particularly heightened to this to this issue about football fan behaviour in general, not seen to be uh, to be making mistakes of the past. And I think from a from a football supporting point of view, when I've been to football in the past couple of seasons. Um, I've noticed a marked difference in the aggressive nature and the sort of vitriol from fans to football players and uh, and at the ground in general. Uh, now, why that is, uh, I don't know whether it's because we've lived in desperate economic times and the general public are generally a little more, you know, hot, um, a little bit more fiery from that perspective. Um, but, you know, we've seen r- racial abuse from the fans onto the field of play towards supporters. We've seen supporters running on the field of play and striking players. Um, as Mark said, pyrotechnics has been another another big issue, and also recently, even in the past, even this weekend, we saw coins being thrown and hitting players in the Championship again, um, and pitch invasions at um, derby games earlier in the season, and at uh, between uh, that was Bristol City, Bristol Rovers, also at Blackpool, Preston, and at Millwall a couple of weeks ago. So there is certainly an issue here, and the the one group that I sometimes find a little bit frustrating as a fan are, are stewards, who are actually employed by the club and hardly have any powers, which is problematic for them. But I have heard and seen abuse happen in the stands, and they don't seem to do anything about it or contact somebody who can. So well, I think there's, more, there's a better this, role to be played by them in you know, engaging with the police, who then do have the powers to deal with the problematic supporters at, at the stadium. 
Yeah, and this and this goes to again, this is part of the difficulty with it, and obviously the guys that kick it out have have developed a, an app to report sort of instances mm. of abusive uh, behaviour. Uh, but again, it, it's it's a difficult position because there is that culture in football that you don't want to be seen as a, uh, I guess, a uh, a grass or as someone who's not loyal to their club or loyal to their fans. It's interesting that you point out that you think it's been getting worse over the last couple of years, at a time where there, there's more focus on the, on heavy regulation of, of this, and I, I I couldn't possibly work out why that why that is if it is the desperate economic times or whether it's just the culture of football in that, you know, people think that that, that it's either funny or, um, you know, it's the way you behave at football grounds. I think it's. Um... I think as well, it, it doesn't help the fact that we've also had high-profile cases of, um, of abuse between players themselves, which have obviously received a lot of attention, not just in this country, but worldwide as well. And I think, as always, as, as we're told, as we always say as referees, if you see something, some bad behaviour by players on the field on a Saturday on match the day, you'll then see similar, they'll think it's acceptable to do that on a Sunday. Um, I think that there is there is an element of that because that seems to come along back at the same time as the off the field issues with supporters. So in balance, then uh, I guess just to, to to finish off from both of you, um, do you think we've got it right? Do you think that currently it's it's a good system? The banning orders, football banning orders, are effective. The guidance on social media or the policy on social media is effective. And if not, or what what are the positives from it, and what would you say that the negatives? What what could be done better? I think, as far as the the banning order framework is concerned, I think where it can be seen to work is where it is genuinely punishing those who have been engaged in football-related disorder, and it is keeping them away from games for usually somewhere between five and ten years, once they've been convicted of a relevant offence. I think what is probably less uh, effective at present is the, the whole of the system of the banning orders on complaint because they're utilised so differently by police forces around the country so in certain cases they are, are almost undoubtedly used to prevent those who are likely to be engaged in disorder from being able to associate with others at football matches but I think it we're in a, a, a we're in a position at the moment where it's it's being used much more widely than that, and not necessarily appropriately, and on relatively flimsy evidence as well. So we've got to be very careful about how we use these orders, where they aren't subjected to the protections that you'd usually find in the criminal justice system. From my perspective, I think um, I th- one of the, one of the things that Marx mentioned about the Tottenham uh, and, the, and the year chanting and I think this is slightly detracting from uh, from the real problem at hand as Marx said is, is ensuring that any football banning orders that are put in place be it for conduct at the stadium around the stadium or be on social media um, is, is proportionate and the conditions are necessary and I think in a large number of cases they are very draconian and some people would say well well that's that's fine you know, it's better to be over um, overprotective about uh, about people going to the game and not having to be subject to such behaviour, but at the same time, I, th- I think the the expression of people and the and their ability to live their lives is sometimes curtailed to such a such an extent that um, that there needs to be some reevaluation. Uh, and on the social media side, although the guidelines have come out, 
I find it difficult to see how they're going to apply such a high threshold because it does get a lot of media coverage when these things make it into the press. And there's a lot of pressure on the CPS to take forward a prosecution. So it'll be interesting to see how that develops as the as, as social media use increases, as it will undoubtedly do. Well, that's all we have time for for this show. I'd like to thank our guests, Kevin Carpenter and Professor Mark James, for their time and input. And remember... For all your expert commentary and analysis on the latest issues and legal developments from the world of sport, go to lawinsport.com, follow us on Twitter at lawinsport, or go to our YouTube channel, Law in Sport TV. Thank you for tuning in. Mm-hmm.